Here's an old Soviet joke, recounted by the historian Yuri Sleskin in his book The Jewish Century. Rabinovich, the classic Jewish character of Russian anecdotes, is asked by a political instructor, Who is your father? He answers, The Soviet Union. Good. And who is your mother? The Communist Party. Excellent, says the instructor. And what is your fondest wish? Rabinovich answers, to become an orphan. Not all Soviet Jews felt this way. But in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, many were feeling less and less close to the Soviet Union. The Stalinist purges had ended in 1953, but Jews were treated differently, both interpersonally and officially. There were the everyday acts of anti-Semitism. For example, my mother recalls filling out a form in elementary school and having to write in Jewish in the blank for ethnicity. When she began writing, her Russian classmate began to shout, Jew, Jew, look, she's going to write Jew. My mother covered her page in shame and pretended to write Russian. And then there were the state policies, which deliberately limited the amount of Jews in universities and workplaces through unofficial quotas on enrollment and employment. This was particularly painful for a group with a long-standing practice of enrolling in higher education and serving in intellectual and professional fields. My father's father aspired to become an inventor and filled notebooks with designs for devices and contraptions. Ingenious, my father insists, but forever overlooked because he was Jewish and therefore couldn't enter the Scientific Research Institute. Instead of his dream occupation, he was forced to work as an engineer in a factory to make a living. The harsh working conditions, soaked in the poison of his bitterness, led to a mental and physical decline and an early death from Parkinson's. I've never seen my paternal grandfather's notebooks and judged the quality of his inventions. I've never evaluated the likelihood of his stardom in a free market, nor have I seen his medical records and confirmed that his death was precipitated by the pain of deferred recognition. But I have heard the falter in my father's voice when he relays the story of his father, just as I have heard it Hardin when he speaks of his own deferment from the Moscow State University where he wanted to study mathematics. For a minority that had seen its near-total annihilation in the Holocaust and the stirrings of similar sentiments in their own country's leadership, Jewish quotas seemed like yet another instance of an age-old pattern. Jews abroad recognized this. In Israel and the United States, a movement formed which sought to defend the rights of Soviet Jews by bringing them out of the Soviet Union. This movement is largely associated with the Etkazniki, or in English, Refuseniks, the term for Jews whose immigration applications were refused by the state and who often lost their jobs for applying to immigrate. The Jewish community abroad galvanized around the Refusenik cause, lobbying so intensely that in 1971, the Soviet ban on Jewish immigration to Israel was lifted. More than 150,000 Jews came to Israel in the 1970s Soviet Aliyah, a significant portion of whom then went to the United States. This phenomenon led to the coining of another Soviet anecdote, this time one my parents told me. Playing on the official phrase, a car is not a luxury but a mode of transportation, Soviets would joke, a Jewish wife is not a luxury, she's a mode of transportation. Yet this 150,000, while undoubtedly a large number, 
was only a fraction of the total Soviet Jewish population. Many Jews did not want to leave the Soviet Union. As Jews in America and Israel continued to rally around the cause of Soviet Jewish emigration, they strengthened their argument by portraying Soviet Jews as powerless victims who only wanted to move to the world capital of democratic freedom or the Zionist homeland. Often, they compared the situation of Jews in the USSR to Jews in Nazi Germany. During the 1987 Freedom Sunday March on Washington, D.C., the largest Jewish political rally in U.S. history, Speaker Elie Wiesel would say, It is now clear that had there been such a demonstration of Jewish and human solidarity and concern in 1942, 1943, and 1944, millions of Jews would have been saved. But too many of us were silent then. We are not silent today. Certainly, the Western campaign fought on behalf of the Soviet Jews got some things right. Indeed, it was very difficult for Soviet Jews to practice their religion or openly display their culture in the Soviet Union. Indeed, even secular Jews, the majority in the Soviet Union, were subject to quotas in employment and education. But the campaign also eclipsed certain aspects of Soviet Jews' actual experience by foregrounding the experience of anti-Semitism and the desire to emigrate as the central aspects of Soviet Jewish life, they ignored the majority of Soviet Jews who did not want to leave behind their homes, their families, and their country, likely for the very simple reason that they had grown used to Soviet life. And in depicting the entirety of Soviet Jewry as opposed to the Soviet system, they overlooked the long history of genuine Jewish involvement in socialism, which Stalinist and post-Stalinist anti-Semitism complicated but did not destroy entirely. For much of this podcast, we've examined the multifaceted true story of Soviet Jewry, a story of pain, but also of accomplishment, of defeat, but also of victory, a complex story which was often starkly oversimplified by the West. In this episode, as we look at Soviet Jewry in the final years of the Soviet Union, we're also going to look at Soviet Jews' experiences abroad, as increasing numbers of them immigrated to Israel and the United States, what happened to their narratives, what happened to their lives, and whether salvation by the West is as simple a story as it seems. In 1961, Yevgeny Yevtushenko had an experience that inspired his seminal poem, Babi Yar, about the lack of a monument recognizing the mass murder of Jews and the Ukrainian ravine of Babi Yar. That experience was meeting another writer, Anatoly Kuznetsov. Kuznetsov was not Jewish, just like Yevtushenko, but he had grown up in Kiev during the Nazi occupation of the city and seen the massacre at Babi Yar. I spoke to... Gr I spoke to Yale grad student Spencer Small, who is writing about Babi Yar as part of his thesis about Kuznetsov's biography. Kuznetsov, Anatoly Valesilievich Kuznetsov, was a Soviet writer, broadly considered, half Ukrainian, half Russian. His mother was Ukrainian, father Russian, fought in the Civil War, but left his family before, before Kuznetsov was, was too old. So he really grew up with his mother and his grandparents in Kiev in a neighborhood called Kurinovka, 
which is near relatively uh, central Kiev and, and close to the Babi Yar ravine. Uh, so he was born in 1929 and he survived the war and the Holocaust in Kiev. And after the war, he remained in Kiev for a while longer. He studied ballet for a time, but eventually abandoned that. He worked as a construction worker for a little while before finally in 1954 being admitted to the Gorky Literary Institute in Moscow, where he studied literature. And he joined the Communist Party in 1955 and the Soviet Writers' Union in 1959. And throughout the mid-50s to the late 1960s, mid-late 1960s, he was sort of a, a staple up-and-coming Soviet writer, publishing through official channels, often through youth literary outlets, such as the journal Unist and their associated publisher, also Maladaya Gvardia, the young guard. Unist means youth for those listening who maybe don't know Russian. And so, so he's, a lot of his work is seen as sort of a, maybe like a Soviet version of what you might call YA literature. Um, but uh, it's something else entirely, I would think. But yeah, so he, he found actually great success in 1957 with his first novel called Pradolzhenie Legendy, which means the continuation of a legend. And this is a sort of um, relatively straightforward uh, socialist realist novel about adolescence. It's 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 has some biographical flavor to it, even if it is a fictional novel. So after uh, the 1950s, he publishes a number of other stories and novels. And in 1966, however, that's when he publishes his uh, most famous work, Babi Yar. Um, which is, uh, has the same title in English, Babi Yar, which is the name of a ravine in Kiev where the single most deadly single day massacre during the Holocaust took place. Over 33,000 Jews were, were killed on the night of September 29th, September 30th, 1941. And this is the novel that really cemented his legacy as a writer. During their meeting, Kuznetsov showed Yevtoshenko around the ravine. Yevtoshenko claimed that this was the experience that inspired his poem, Babi Yar. There's a really interesting story about Kuznetsov and Yevtoshenko. So Yevtoshenko and Kuznetsov both tell versions of, of the same story, wherein Yevtoshenko, after the war, was visiting Kiev because he wanted to see the massacre sites there. And Kuznetsov, being a fellow literati, was his guide, essentially, his, his local guide. Kuznetsov, at this point, I believe, was living in Moscow, so he's also returning to, to Kiev. And apparently they both stood over the embankment at Babi Yar, and allegedly, as Kuznetsov tells it, while they were both standing there, Yevtushenko sort of spontaneously mutters what would become the first lines of his poem, Babi Yar. So at Babi Yar, there are no monuments. And there were not at the time until the 1970s. Anyway, and so, and so there is this really close relationship between, well, perhaps it's only close in retrospect, but there's a relationship between Kuznetsov's Babi Yar and Yetushenko's Babi Yar. In fact, when Kuznetsov was first publishing the novel in 1966, he had to sort of fight tooth and nail to preserve the title Babi Yar for his book. 
And, and, and the reason was that the editors at Unist were, were afraid that people would confuse it with Yevtushenko's poem and, and that there would be the sort of muddling of, of which work was what. Kuznetsov ultimately succeeded. His autobiographical novel about Babi Yar was published in 1966 by the journal Unist, apparent proof that one could write about the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. But then, in 1969, Kuznetsov defected from the Soviet Union to the UK, and there he republished his novel in an altered format. The Soviet censors had altered his text, Kuznetsov claimed. What Kuznetsov claims, and what we can reasonably assume as excised material from the original drafts, are passages that reflect a recognition of Jewish victimhood specifically, right? In Soviet political discourse, Nazi crimes in Eastern Europe were against the Soviets. They weren't against Jews. There was a sort of collective victimhood that was asserted by the powers that be. So anything that Kuznetsov was writing that, that referenced the specificity of, of Jewish victimhood would have been likely removed. Also, any sort of indictments against Soviet power, of course, would have been removed. And we see these passages in, in the later Western editions where Kuznetsov is critiquing Soviet power. However, it can be difficult to determine if these passages were actually in the original drafts or if they were sort of included ex post facto with the claim that these were in the original drafts to sort of bolster his, his political clout, if you will. But, but we can also assume that there were also revisions made to certain descriptions of violence. There, there are many passages throughout the novel that are incredibly graphic. This, this book is certainly uh, difficult reading for its content. And and I, I wish there was more I could say about what was definitively um, censored. However, I think the more interesting story lies in what Kuznetsov claims was censored and how he formatted the subsequent publication of the book, right? Because after all, we have the documents themselves. And we so, so we have the original publication in Unist. This is the 1967 publication through Maladai Gvardia. For the listeners, I'm, I'm holding up a copy of the book. And again, this is this is very similar to the one that was published in Unist, right? After novels were published in serial, they would often be published in, in uh, book format. And then again, it was published in, in 1970 in the West through, through several different publishers in different languages. And so the documents that we have, I think, are incredibly interesting on their own. And this is a conversation that could be enriched even further by finding those drafts. So allegedly, Kuznetsov, when he emigrated to the UK in 1969, his story is that he smuggled the original manuscripts on um, film. And, and that's what he used to, to write the sort of definitive edition, which was published in 1970. However, this film has not been located. So who knows? By changing the information included in the second version of Babi Yar, Kuznetsov changed its very ideological valence. So I, I think that we can say that if the original publication of Babi Yar and the Soviet Union was an indictment uh, of Nazism, then the 1970 publication of Babi Yar in the West was an indictment of totalitarianism. And so while the content in many 
cases does not change, there are significant additions that are made, which recontextualize many of the claims that are made. And so the ethical orientation is one in which Kuznetsov asserts his own story of the Holocaust, right? His, his witness testimony of the events that occurred in Kiev throughout 1941, 1942, and through 1943. He, he maps the historical events of the Holocaust onto his own story of writing and publishing Babi Yar in the Soviet Union and in the West. So, and whether or not this is an ethical thing to do, and a sort of, you know, if this is sort of morally justifiable, whether or not that is the case is, is an entirely different question. However, based on how Kuznetsov presents his own project, he draws parallels between the type of totalitarian regime that would murder millions of Jews and one that would censor the story of the murder of millions of Jews, if that makes sense. So, so he really is drawing some very risky equivalences between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. But he also indicts other forms of, of, of hard power. So, so in, in, in one passage, he talks about you know, not knowing what sorts of future Auschwitzes, Kolimas, and Hiroshimas might exist. So, so in effect, he's saying, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying in this novel is much larger than the specific context of Babi Yar, right? What is at stake is not just the memory of those who have been murdered by the Nazis, but the very future of humanity itself, which is, again, whether this is morally sound is another question, but the ethical orientation itself sort of takes this extremely wide approach to um, sort of humanism. Just to sort of illustrate how these passages changed with their republication. And just for, for, for historical background, once Kuznetsov emigrated to the UK in 1969, he published Babiyar, which has the subtitle Roman Document, which is novel document. So there's this question of, you know, the artistry of documentation and um, perhaps another question for another time, but perhaps keep in mind uh, the question of artifice as we look at what is in, in, in many ways, uh, one of the most potent testimonial documents of the Soviet Holocaust. Uh, but what he's doing is, let me, let me just read a passage to you. So he publishes this later edition and adds both passages that were allegedly removed from the original manuscript, and he also adds passages that he wrote during the interim between his, between the original publication and the publication in the West. So I'm just going to read you a quick passage, some of which has been allegedly edited from the original. So this is when he's meeting with a woman who witnessed uh, the massacres at Baviar uh, sometime in the 1950s or 60s. She pointed with her hand underground into the depths because we were standing above a non-existent ravine. Only such elderly inhabitants can still point out the borders of Baviar remnants, embankments, and other traces of the event, but there remained no evidence of the crimes. The ashes, as you recall, were partly scattered. The ash and bones lie deep, so that nothing remains of those who were killed. So the first few sentences of that were allegedly edited out of the original manuscript. What was preserved, what was published in the Soviet edition was, the ashes, as you recall, were partly scattered. The ashes and bones lie deep, so that nothing remains of those who were killed. 
So that was published in the Soviet Union, no problem. But this whole part about this woman pointing underground into the depths of the no longer extant embankment, there remains no evidence of the crimes. This was all added in later. So a lot of what we see, and, and the book is expanded, it's, it's almost doubled in length when it's republished with all these editions. And so many of these are sort of his processing, if you will. I don't make any pretensions to uh, being a psychologist or anything, but a lot of what we see is uh, uh, resonates with what trauma theorists have um, described as a sort of recollection of trauma. Kuznetsov's publication and republication of Babiyar encompasses what is so difficult about Soviet history during the Cold War. While Kuznetsov said nothing false about the suffering of Jews and Soviet citizens more generally under Soviet rule, he undeniably shifted the focus of his book, presenting suffering and oppression under totalitarianism as the foremost aspect of Soviet existence. The same thing happened in many Western reflections on Jewish life in the Soviet Union. Jewish identification with the Soviet cause and non-Jewish sympathy for Jews disappeared, while Soviet oppression of Jews was foregrounded. Western reports on the USSR omitted data in order to support this narrative. For example, a 1990 article by the New York Times, titled Survey in Moscow Sees a High Level of Anti-Jewish Feeling, reported that 18% of Russians disliked Jews, but omitted that 63% disliked Pymets, the Russian nationalist anti-Semitic organization. Likewise, it reported that 23% of Russians believed that Jews exerted too much influence over Russian culture, but omitted that 56% of Russians disagreed. Again, the Western outlets weren't lying in their reporting, but they were emphasizing facts which supported a specific worldview, and de-emphasizing facts that didn't. So what exactly did these Western narratives de-emphasize? Professor Miriam Schulz, who teaches at the University of Toronto and studies Soviet Yiddish anti-fascism, explains that beneath the trope of the suffering refusenik, there existed a much more complex and diverse Jewish community with major disagreements about what the Jewish future should look like. Just roughly speaking, in the post-war period, we can probably speak of at least three different factions, I would say, kind of a... Zionist faction that was a minority, actually, but that was amplified, actually, in Cold War scholarship, right? Um, for obvious reasons, it was the Cold War, Western-centric, and Zionist activists in the Soviet Union very much spoke to exactly what the West wanted to hear. Getting away from communism, going to the West, capitalist redemption. Then we have a mass of Soviet Jews that were Jewish, but maybe their Jewish identity wasn't as important as we might think Jewish identity should be, right? So I think thinking about Soviet Jewry today is also a way of us unlearning kind of our identity obsession and this kind of perversion of identity politics in the West. And then we have, again, a minority faction of Soviet Yiddishists. So Yiddish was declared the national language of Soviet Jewry by 1919, I believe. And it became kind of the framework, the legitimate framework for constructing a Jewishness as part of a Soviet project, right? So I'm really interested in 
what they did, how they constructed their memory of the Second World War or the Great Patriotic War and the Holocaust as part of the memory regime that was constructed in the Soviet Union. So what I tried to do is, first of all, understanding memory always as political on both sides of the Iron Curtain and Holocaust memory specifically as a product of the Cold War. This is when it was constructed. There were specific political needs in, on both camps, on both sides, meaning that in the West, the need kind of to put the Holocaust um, as the central occurrence of World War II was also a means not to talk about communism and the role of the Soviet Union in the victory over fascism, right? It had specific political objectives for also a redemptive narrative in the West of defeating fascism and end to fascism and also as a way not to kind of confront the capitalist system, which was ultimately the very system that Nazism or fascism in and of itself grew out of, right? In the Soviet Union, as we know, the Holocaust was kind of blended in into this narrative of the Great Patriotic War, and the Soviet Union and communism became the main target of Nazism. So here we have a way not to talk about the Jews in order to talk about communism. So in both cases, I would argue, even though I guess the Western framework worked really well, especially for Zionism, of course, <laughs> um, politically, Jews kind of were the victim of both memory regimes. Because in the West, Jews were kind of celebrated at, as these um, superior uh, humans, but also mostly as the superior victim, right, with specific repercussions for the image of the Jew, kind of, as the embodiment of humanity, but then thus also kind of excising him out of humanity, in a sense. And in the Soviet Union, Jews were kind of blended in also as a way to completely negate this method or fascist method of racialization, right? This was a really important objective for Soviet ideologues to completely negate that race existed. And this we also see very much in Soviet Yiddish works of the time. So in my work, what I can see is that indeed for many Soviet Jews, there was no connection actually necessarily between commemorating the Holocaust as one specific kind of history of victimhood and at the same time celebrating yourself also as the ultimate victor. Because ultimately, through the victory over fascism, Soviet Jews could claim to having become a complete, completed part of, a full-fledged part of the Soviet Union, right? So in that sense, if we don't approach it through the genocide framework and Holocaust framework from the West, there was not necessarily a contradiction. I would think. Um, but if we think about these other factions of Soviet Jewry, of course, the Holocaust in kind of the Western framework, claiming supreme victimhood um, in the Second World War 
as Jews, of course, they collided, these two narratives. Professor Schulz speaks to the centrality of Holocaust memory for the way these different groups define themselves. Far from being completely unaware of the Holocaust, Soviet Jews knew about it and incorporated it into their political identity. In particular, the Holocaust appeared often in the work of Soviet Yiddishists. Post-1967 is a great case studies for um, Soviet Jewishnesses in the plural and kind of the, the intra-Jewish war as an image of the Cold War writ large. So what we see after... 1967, the Six-Day War, but also with kind of the increasing immigration movement to Israel and the United States, um, Soviet Yiddishists were propagating, of course, against immigration. And one tool of, of doing that is to write much more about the Holocaust and the Great Patriotic War as a way to kind of show or propagate Soviet patriotism and actually make the claim that it is due to the Soviet Union, due to fight um, against fascism, that Jews survived the Second World War. And thus, why would you leave? This is the countries for Jews um, to live on, exactly because of the Holocaust and the Great Patriotic War. So what we see, numbers show that actually the Holocaust is much more discussed in Soviet Shameland at the time, which was, by the way, also disseminated globally. It was also kind of a tool um, within the Cold War to convince Jews in the West of kind of the advantages of um, communism. So what they tried to do is both convince Jews in the West of kind of the Holocaust being a subject that is very much um, discussed and commemorated in the Soviet Union, that it can function in a way or work well together with the narrative of the Great Patriotic War because it makes Jews into the not only the superior victim but also the superior victor and also as a way to convince Soviet Jews to stay, actually. So the Holocaust and the Great Patriotic War is something that gains in importance as Jews try to leave the Soviet Union en masse. It wasn't true that Soviet Jews didn't talk about the Holocaust. They simply talked about it in a different way, both in the official and unofficial Soviet discourse. In the Cold War, the question of the Holocaust and how it was discussed became central in the ideological competition between the West and the Soviet Union for Jewish support. Stanford professor Harriet Murav explained the reason for this shift in focus. Well, the why is easy. The why is the Cold War. Who, allow, who sustains and allows minorities to flourish? The, the U.S., Israel on the one side, or the Soviet Union? Okay, it depends what side you're on. So the Western narrative is World War II destroys the Jewish people and they re, are reborn in the state of Israel. The Holocaust is absolutely a central building block of Israeli culture and society. So the two great powers, the U.S. and Soviet Union, are engaged in a contest. And that, that contest requires a very black and white view of what Soviet Jewish life was. I mean, I have friends who are part of the Institute 
Judaica Institute at the European University in St. Petersburg, who, you know, said to me, like, if we were totally wiped out, what are we doing here? How did we get here? Like, if if there was no Soviet Jewish, no Jewish consciousness, no knowledge, no awareness, no interest, then how come we're here? You know, exploring architecture of synagogues, exploring the ethnography of the shtetl, which was what these folks, these scholars are doing. So, the you know the so-called Jews of silence who didn't have any awareness, who weren't allowed. I mean, Arkady Zeltser, who's at Yad Vashem, the head of the Soviet Jewish division, has compiled these invitations for memorial evenings that Jews in the Soviet Union circulated amongst themselves to talk about to remember those who had been destroyed um, by the Nazis. So there there was memory. There was not only memory, but there was engagement. And it was before the movement towards immigration as well. So what that narrative gets wrong is, you know, these are people who were forced to, you know, not know anything about their own past. And this simply isn't, this is too blanket a statement, too blanket a statement. Not only did the West misunderstand how Soviet Jews perceived their past, it also misunderstood how many of them perceived their future. I think a lot of people experience a lot of bigotry and prejudice and yet identify with the place in which they were born and grew up and to whose culture and society they make a contribution. I mean, a lot of people, like in this country, who experience gross discrimination and have done and their parents have done and their grandparents never wanted to leave but said no I belong here I'm going to make this place the place of my hopes and my ideals I'm not going to accept it so I mean the decision to leave is I think a whole an entirely different question I mean I was in Moscow in 88 and the first meeting of this all-union committee of Jews, Va'ad, and the big discussion on the floor was, do we go or do we stay? And, yeah, many people left in the early 90s and late 80s, and they left in the late 70s, the late 80s, the 90s, and many people stayed. And, you know, these were people who had experienced quotas in education. I mean... People stayed for, for and didn't leave for all kinds of reasons. So you affirm your place in a different version of the world that you currently live in, and you take the bad with the good. I mean, people do that all over the world, I think. Another guest I spoke to, Professor Gennady Estraich, supported Murav's statement by pointing out that statistically, Jewish identification with socialism actually seemed to go up. You can't find in the Soviet Union any other ethnic group with such a high percentage of members of the Communist Party as among the Jews. And it's important to keep in mind that in the Soviet system, membership card part of being a member of the party, it opened many doors for promotion, 
for some, it, it, it didn't guarantee that a person who had a card would become, you know, what, director of a factory. But still, it, it made it, it, it more possible, yeah, a promotion, maybe not to a director or something else. Yeah. And uh, the percentage of communists among Jews, paradoxically, was growing during the entire Soviet period. The highest percentage was in 1989. And at that time, 20% of all adult Jews, Soviet Jews, were communists. It is also important to keep in mind that in order to become a communist, it wasn't enough just to say, oh, I want to be a communist. No. You had to be vetted, you had to be you know, seen as a person who deserved to be a, a, a communist, uh, you know, to be a reliable person, as a Soviet person. So, so on the one hand, yes, it was difficult for a Jew to become uh, a minister, to become something really significant in the hierarchy of the Soviet system. But uh, the proportion of Jews in this positions, uh, managerial positions, in positions of intellectual positions, and so on. Look, uh, as an example, you know, you have, in the Soviet Union, there were various um, um, organizations, associations, say the Writers' Union, the Composers' Union. The proportion of Jews was, was very high. You know, in, in, in 1950, Something I don't remember. Every third professional writer in Moscow was Jewish. The proportion of composers was even higher, significantly higher. So writers, artists, actors, and, and so on. Also what we see, that somehow apparently in the mind of such people as Khrushchev and, and some other people, leadership, they divided Jews into two categories. One category were people who were thoroughly Sovietized and who were educated and who were useful. And we find as a result such people in numerous managerial leading positions, responsible positions and so on. At the same time, we feel that uh, the same leaders looked down, maybe more than down, yeah, with some, looked at, at uh, what they called, or some people called Jewish Jews, you know, people who were more traditional, who were engaged in the uh, area of retail, in, uh, in, you know, this somehow what was considered kind of this old shtetl kind of Jews that, that, that continued to, to this, this time. So it, it, it was... It, it is complex. It is quite often people simplify it. The problem is that uh, scholarship, scholarship that focused on studying Soviet Jewry, paid attention predominantly to those who were willing to emigrate, who wanted to emigrate, who struggled, who were dissidents, who whatever. And, and, and it's a huge corpus of literature researched and, and written. At the same time, those Jews, and it was the majority, 
who continued to live in the Soviet Union, and many of them were satisfied with their life, somehow it is a neglected area of scholarship. You know, it is, it is hardly any, any research of uh, uh, focusing on a happy I don't know, actor, on a happy shoemaker, on, on a happy... There's hardly anything. Because it was, it was boring, it wasn't interesting, it wasn't po- politically uh, somehow exciting, yes. People who wanted to emigrate, these were real Jews, yeah, but otherwise. So uh, as a result now, when the dust is down and, and the ideological, you know, it's, of course, uh, m- many things were written... Uh, in the climate of the Cold War from both sides. So now is the time to look uh, at, at various groups of, of the Soviet Jewry and, and in order to understand better the pictures, to add not you know, from uh, two-dimensional to make it three-dimensional. Yes. Even if living in the Soviet Union limited Jews' opportunities in employment and education and exposed them to regular encounters with anti-Semitism, many continued to view it as their home. The quintessence was that people just lived. Look, a person had an apartment, maybe had even a dacha, yeah, that is some. Maybe even had a car, had a decent job, yeah, on the scale. I'm not. It is not to compare the with this what it, with life in the United States, but on on the Soviet scale, yeah, it was fine. His family lived in the same country or usually in the same city, yes, and in order. To move, emigration is a very difficult business. Yeah, I know it's firsthand. Yeah, it is a very difficult business. Yeah, to move to another place, to learn a, a, a different language, to it is a test of your professional skills, of your human qualities. It is a test to your family. You know, many families didn't survive the immigration. Yeah. Someone, one spouse was more successful than another one. And many, numerous stories, yeah. So, this is the only explanation. Before na- the mid-1970s, the United States was cl- effectively closed for immigration, yes. It started from 1974, and it became possible to go to, to choose between going to Israel or going to, to the United States. And um, you know, a lot has been written about how important Zionism was among Soviet Jews, but once again, figures show that when it became possible to go to the United States, pretty soon the majority went to the United States rather than to Israel. But, but again, again, there were many things that stopped people Family, you know, you emigrate, you had to say goodbye for good. At that time, it was for good to your parents. You had quite often people had a second family and they had children with this first family and what to leave this. Anyway, it was an endless number of problems. And once again, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. Even, even the application itself it was a challenge because... You couldn't be sure that the state, the apparatus would allow you to leave the country and, and you would end up being in this category, category of refuseniks and then you could lose your job. It was associated with many challenges. But even without challenges, people had their jobs. People had, you know, I remember when I applied, 
for immigration we applied in 1979. Yeah, we were not allowed to go and refusenics and so on. But my my brother told me, why would you go to a capitalist country? Why would you go? You know, people had a, a limited access to information as well. Because you couldn't subscribe in, in even in Moscow to New York Times you know, or whatever, or the internet didn't exist. And so the, the information that people had, especially outside the, the cities here, central cities, it was uh, yeah, m- minimal. Also, many people had an interesting job. And, and sometimes a job that couldn't be uh, converted if someone was a specialist in Alexander Pushkin, yes? <laughs> what kind of, a, of a, how many people could find a, a job in, in this Russian literature outside Russia? Two and a half people, two and a half positions, yeah. So, so this was a problem, yeah. A doctor had to, to pass new examinations, yeah. No, not everyone. So it was, you know, it was a catalog, a catalog of problems and, and some people, uh, more prone to, to, to such adventures, yeah. And some people are more careful, yeah. yeah so. It was not that easy, especially as it was a one-way ticket. This was also a challenge. It wasn't really, okay, I'll go, I don't like San Francisco, I'll come back to Moscow. Yes, It was not really the case. Professor Estreich's own life speaks to the intricate blending of socialist and Jewish life in the late Soviet Union. Western narratives of Soviet Jewry stripped their experience of much of this complexity. This distorted perception had unpleasant consequences for those Jews that did decide to immigrate. When highly educated and overwhelmingly secular Soviet Jews came to the West, they encountered Western Jews who believed them to be helpless, ignorant of their true history, and desperately in need of cultural and religious re-education. Soviet Jews often didn't like this at all. I spoke with Aksana Mironova, who was born in the former Soviet Union, about the unexpected difficulties faced by Jews who immigrated. Yeah, I think that there was, uh, so um, from what I understand, there was kind of like two separate tracks. On one hand, there was uh, um, the kind of like reform and conservative communities that had wanted to help Russian Jews assimilate into kind of like normative um, Ashkenazi culture. Um, On one hand, and then there was the Lubavitcher Hasidic community as well that did pretty heavy outreach among Russian Jews. Um, and I, again, like I'm not really sure what the balance was of like how successful either one was. Um, but there was absolutely, I think, like a big tension between the Russian-speaking Jews who were like the the, pra- the the practice of Judaism was suppressed, so the community was really secular um, with both. Lubavitchers and uh, reform congregations that were like, well, you guys should be doing this practice because we helped you come here uh, to be able to like do Judaism. And then like that didn't necessarily happen. Another interviewee I spoke to, the poet and NYU professor Eugene Astashevsky, remembers feeling precisely this alienation from the American Jewish community when he came to the United States in 1979. We immigrated in the 70s, in 1979, back when, you know, immigration was open 
almost exclusively for Jews. And, you know, with Jewishness being, as you perfectly well know, an ethnicity, much more so than, than a religion in the Soviet Union. And we came to New York, and I grew up in New York. When we came, I was sent to a Jewish school, yeshiva, uh, which was run by the ultra-Orthodox, although many of the students were not ultra-Orthodox. In fact, most of the students were not ultra-Orthodox. And it was divided very clearly into three groups, the Americans, the Israelis, and the Russians. And they fought all the time. And I lasted about a year there. It was tremendously violent. And I had a fairly strong conflict with the non-secular teachers because they, there was a kind of sense among them or so I thought that we weren't, I mean, well, they certainly thought that we weren't Jewish enough. But there was a kind of sense that, like, you know, they knew what human beings should be like and they were going to teach us as immigrants. And, you know, it's hard for me to speak for everybody, but generally when you have a kid come from the Soviet Union and already, you know, very distrustful of authority, I mean, that attitude is just not going to work. Comically, like if this happened in a novel, I would be like, this is too obvious. It's a stupid novel. Um, I actually had got into conflict with my religion teacher over the sacrifice of Isaac, where I said that it was cruel and irresponsible of God to, you know, play this trick on Abraham. I'm not sure that I knew the word irresponsible at that point in English. But whatever it is that I said, she was very unhappy with me. I don't know. I had a bad reaction to it. I didn't really learn Hebrew. I spent about a year in there and I, I left for public school. Listening to Eugene Ostashevsky speak about the dissonance he felt when interacting with American Jews, I was reminded of my own sense of alienation from the kids around me when I attended Hebrew school years and years ago, or when I came to Shabbat at the Jewish Cultural Center at my university. I wasn't born in the Soviet Union, and I've never been to Russia, so I'm sure the alienation I felt was nothing like Eugene's. Nonetheless, the people who I was supposed to be closest to in the world, by virtue of our shared history and culture and religion, seemed extremely foreign to me. The Hebrew prayers and Jewish holidays that they had grown up with confused and bored me. Even though many of them traced their heritage back to the same pale of settlement that my own family had come from, their families had been in the United States for multiple generations they would have been stunned by the existence of someone like my babushka, a Jew who sang Soviet war songs with a thousand times more affection and emotion than Jewish prayers. As I came to understand while working on this project, 
This was because American Jewish identity had been constructed around the absence of people like my grandmother. People who had been both Soviet and Jewish and hadn't picked one identity over the other. Professor Miriam Schulz explained to me how this normative conception of Jewishness had come about. The normative conception of Jewishness in the West obviously is both religious and kind of working with an understanding of freedom and liberty that kind of foregrounds anti-Semitism as a driving force of Jewish history, right? What the Cold War actually did is to understand Jewishness as having to happen always outside of communism. An idea of a Jew that is also a communist is something that was always, that was constructed as being outside of something that is a possibility because of late Stalinism and the Stalinist purges in the late 1940s and 50s. So communism kind of zeroed, zeroed out any possibility of being Jewish. The people, Jewish people in the Soviet Union thus had to be constructed as victims of a criminal regime that tried to kind of eliminate Jewishness out of them through the communist ideology. Because of the Holocaust, this was constructed as kind of a second Holocaust, cultural Holocaust. What American Jewry to do is not let the Holocaust happen again, meaning this time we'll get all of them out. This time we're going to save them. This is very much a white savior kind of narrative, right? And we also have to remember, and again, this is, I guess, where the political comes into play. Israel was also a young state and needed Jewish people to work. And they were very much interested in white people coming to Israel rather than um, brown Jews from Arab nations, right? So this was also a way to, to get white Jewish Ashkenazi people to come to, to Israel. So ultimate image that was constructed by was a product of, of these political dynamics going on in the Cold War, kind of divorcing Jewishness from communism, saying that Jews can only be uh, victims of communism or they're not Jews anymore. Right? That's why the story of Soviet Yiddishists is almost completely forgotten. That's why it couldn't even be told. It's completely out of this framework that was constructed. So it's very interesting how it was quite a successful campaign to get Soviets out of, out of the Soviet Union. But what happened once they arrived here is, of course, being confronted with an image of their life. That was very much not what they experienced in at home. And actually, Anna Sternschuss, since you mentioned her, I don't know if you had a look at the recent Jewish currents issue, the Soviet issue. She makes a point, which is super important, that Soviet Jews did not leave the Soviet Union because of anti-Semitism. It was mostly because of um, economic reasons, right? So the Western frame of like this eternal 
anti-Semitism and being freed from this eternal anti-Semitism, maybe only in the West, but maybe even not there, right? Maybe actually only in, in the state of Israel. This constructed an idea about the, the Jewish experience in the Soviet Union, which was again only governed by anti-Semitism, only kind of very much in the Sartre sense that the anti-Semite makes the Jew, not so much that a Jewish person kind of has their own way of creating their identity, regardless of anti-Semitism or any other kind of external force, right? So yeah, it's very complicated. It The American discussions about Soviet Jewry necessarily had to kind of silence certain parts of Soviet Jewry, which, as I said, were parts of Soviet Jewry that were very okay with living in the Soviet Union, if not preferred it, because it clashed with an idea of what Jewishness actually is in the Cold War context. When I began working on this project, I believe I had some slight inkling of this fact. I pitched the project as complicating our conception of World War II through the story of Soviet Jews, a story in which, quote, suffering is wedded to action, fear to bravery, tragedy to eventual triumph. Having listened to many Holocaust testimonies by Soviet Jews, I already sensed that the experience of Jews in World War II contained not only suffering, but also courage and resistance. But while working on this project, I have learned that this was not only true during World War II, that throughout the history of Soviet Jewry, there are many stories of Jewish agency, Jewish partnership with other Soviet peoples, Jewish participation in constructing a state which has historically been seen as their enemy, Jewish communism. The history of Soviet Jews ended when the Soviet Union ended. And in both cases, the victors wrote history. Just as most of the world wrote off the communist experiment as a fluke and a failure, the Jewish community accepted that its two historic homes were Israel and the United States, but had never been the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, in the post-Soviet Aliyah, over a million Jews fled the chaos of a crumbling country and economy to arrive in Israel. Western Europe, and the United States, where, like my own parents, they stopped associating with the Soviet Union. The idea that Jews were always, deep down, anti-communists had probably never been easier to believe. But if we are to fully understand what it means to be Jewish, we have to learn those stories which sit uneasily with this now-canonized narrative. If we are to understand people like my babushka, or Eugene Astashevsky, or Gennady Estraich, or like Mikhail Rom, or like David Bergelson, or Leon Trotsky, or Ziga Vertov, we have to look more carefully at the history of Soviet Jews. We shouldn't overlook the decades-long repression of Jewish culture and religion the terrible Stalinist purges and executions of Jews, the post-Stalinist quotas on Jewish employment and education, 
which affected the trajectories of so many Jewish careers, and the casual anti-Semitism, which was a part of everyday Soviet Jewish life. But we should also take seriously the Jews of Tsarist Russia, who agitated for a Soviet future. The Jews of the early Soviet years, who believed Moscow could be the center of Yiddish literature. The Jews of World War II, who wrote songs praising Stalin for supplying them with machine guns. And the Jews of the post-Stalinist years, who viewed their country as the force that had saved them from extermination. And if we are ever to reopen our political imaginations, to picture a potential Jewish future which does not depend on isolation for survival, and to view leftist politics as something more than a path to eventual totalitarianism and suppression of minority groups, we have to question the worldview that Jews and communism are fundamentally opposed. When I went to high school in Birmingham, Alabama, there were both few Jews and few Russians, and so peers would sometimes ask me whether I saw myself as more Russian or more Jewish. I'm sure they were just making small talk, not suspecting that they would serve as inspiration for a podcast series somewhere down the line. But they were hitting on a very well-established idea in the West. The idea that these two histories could not coincide. Now, at the conclusion of this series, I finally have an answer to their question. Not either or, but both, like my babushka herself. Thank you for tuning in.